0: Praise God. Let's begin. Let's pray together, shall we? Oh, Father, it's wonderful to be in your company. Thank you, Father, that wherever we go, you're with us. You said that you would never leave us nor forsake us. And, Father, we thank you. You are everywhere. When we leave, you're at the place that we have left. You're with us on the journey. And when we get to the place that we are aiming for, there you are to greet us. Father, we thank you. You're so wonderful. And thank you that through the work of Jesus, we may never be cut off from you ever again. We were once cut off in our sins, but Jesus took our sins on the cross. And because of that, we have been reconciled even to you. Father, I thank you so much, it says, that we are reconciled to you and not the other way around. For, Father, it shows that it is man that has turned his back on God. and You have never turned your back on man. Father, I pray in Jesus' name, Father, that even through these Bible studies, many may come to know that Jesus Christ is Lord, and they might know that he is the Saviour of the world, that he is indeed the very the very presence of God, and, Father, that he is risen from the dead. Oh, Father, we long to see people saved, Father, and we pray for those Christians who may have lost the reality of Jesus' resurrection. And, Father, we're just asking you will restore to them the joy of their salvation. We thank you for the wonderful things we're studying tonight, and thank you they are the cause of great rejoicing in our hearts and of great hope. Father, will you anoint the words? May they go forth with power. May they go forth with victory. And Father, in Jesus' name, may he be lifted up, for he has said, if he is lifted up, he will draw all men, even to himself. Oh, thank you, Lord. Just come and bless us tonight, in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise you, Lord. We are ready now to consider the tricky and sometimes controversial question of whether the church will go through the, the period we call the tribulation, or whether it will not. Now, before we begin, let us just remind ourselves of the period of history that we are dealing with. In the very first Bible study of this course, I drew out a time-chart and we've been working our way through it. Let us uh, see the period that we're now dealing with. It is the section which goes from the cross of Jesus and extends forward into history, the period that we called on that occasion the Church. And we saw that after the Church there was an event which is called the Second Advent of Jesus Christ so I'm going to write over here the second advent of Jesus Christ and we saw from Matthew 24 that there was something that came before the second advent of Jesus Christ which preceded it which is called in Matthew 24 a period of tribulation so that taken in order we find that it is the church the tribulation, and then the second advent of Jesus Christ. Now that's the section we're dealing with. The issue tonight is this. Is the tribulation separate to the church, or is it not? In other words, will the church be ended first, and then the tribulation come in? Or is the tribulation actually just the last part of the history of the church on the earth? This is a crucial question and is normally phrased in the term, will the Church go through the Tribulation or not? If you believe that the Tribulation is a period separate to the Church period, then you must believe that the Church will not go through the Tribulation. If you believe that the Tribulation is the end of the Church period, then you must believe that the Church will go through the Tribulation. And needless to say, in our present day, there are people and lovely Christians on both sides of the argument. Let us be aware of this, that it is a matter of biblical interpretation. Now we've got to get this clear. In 1 Peter 3.15 it says that we must be ready to give an answer to every man concerning the hope that is within us. In other words, if someone actually comes up to us and says, Oh, what's your opinion of this issue? It is no good saying, well, I think the church will go through the tribulation, or I think the church won't go through the tribulation, and just leave it at that. And then when they ask you why, say, oh, well, I don't know, I just I just believe it, that's all. That is no reason for believing the particular uh, views that you hold. You've got to be able to explain from Scripture why the view that you hold is correct. Now, I met a man in Sweden who asked me this question. Will the church go through the tribulation or not? And when I told him my answer, he almost hugged me, which uh, for that particular Swede is really quite something. And he was dancing for joy. And I just went through a few scriptures with him to support my answer. And he said, Roger, he said, the answer you've given me is the view that I have held most of my life. He said, but I met a minister who I respected very highly, and I asked him that question. Will the church go through the tribulation? And he gave me the answer opposite to my own view. And when I said to him, well, why do you think the view, why do you hold the view that you hold? He simply said, well, one day I asked the Lord, will the church go through the tribulation or not? And the Lord said, yes or no, I'm not telling you which side of the argument. And that was it. There was no more justification. It was simply that this man had said that he asked the Lord and the Lord had given him the answer. Now the trouble with that is that, of course, I can say exactly the same thing and so can you. That you asked the Lord and the Lord said yes or no and that's the end of the argument. It is not the way to answer questions like this. One has to be able to support it from Scripture. Tonight, therefore, and next week, and next time, and probably the time after, we will be answering this question in full. All right? The period we call the tribulation is not just general tribulation. The tribulation is a period of history, a distinct number of years, a distinct period of time, which is characterized by the worst tribulation the earth will ever experience in its long history. And therefore, we've got to beware of people who quote scriptures talking about the general tribulation we as believers go through. Because, you see, every one of us is a child of God, but we live in cosmos diabolicus. That is the devil's world. And if you get God's people living in the devil's world, you are bound to have some friction and some tension somewhere. Because of that, you will find that there are times in your life when you will go through stress, when you will go through strain, when you will go through suffering, when you might even go through some form of persecution, whether it's directly from the devil, or whether it's from your non-Christian workmates, or your non-Christian family. Now that is called tribulation. It is not called THE tribulation. Now let's see what Jesus said about tribulation in general. So would we t- could we turn to John 16 and verse 33? I quote this because I've heard a Bible, a so-called Bible scholar actually say, my Bible says this, and that was the only scripture he quoted for his view about the tribulation. In verse 33 of John 16, here's what it says. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And this man stood up and said, My Bible says in the world you will have tribulation. And he says, That's the answer to the question. Now that is not the answer to the question. And if you do that type of thing, then in fact you're entering onto the same territory that the Jehovah's Witnesses use, and most of the so-called biblical sects use. They take one little verse, they take it totally out of context, and they base everything upon it. This is to do with the general pressure all believers have in the devil's world. Paul uses the word tribulation to mean similar things. Let's have a look at that. In Romans 5, 3, We've got a mention of it in Romans 5. I begin verse 1 because they're marvellous truths. Romans 5 verse 1, "...therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also." Now, he's not saying there, we glory in the tribulation. Not saying that. We glory in tribulation. So that when we find pressure coming upon us, when we find the devil and sin and all these other things beginning to press us so that our body, this tent in which we live, begins to groan, we glory in it. And we say, Lord... We will not turn our back upon you. We are not going to argue against you. But, Father, we know the truth in which we stand. And so we resist this thing in Jesus' name. We glory in it. And then he says that the tribulations that we go through produce patience within us. And we begin to learn to wait on God. And that patience produces experience. And we learn that even in the tribulation, God delivers us. And so it goes on. All right? Uh, One other verse that is sometimes quoted, Ephesians 3.13, in which Paul actually says that he is going through tribulation at this particular time. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 13. Ephesians 3.13, Wherefore I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you which is for your glory. Now, if by using the word tribulation he means he's in the tribulation, that's wonderful news for us because it means the tribulation's over. Because, you see, the tribulation is a very limited period of time, the exact length of which we will see uh, next, next time, but it's a small period of time. If the use of the word tribulation means the tribulation, then it will have finished by this time. No, it doesn't. The use of the word tribulation refers to the pressure that we all, at some time or other, go through. What we are talking about is the period of time called the tribulation. And so we have to do some study in the area of the tribulation time. Now actually, I have already given you the two keys that you need to be able to answer this question, will the church go through the tribulation or not? In the third series of Bible studies, in a Bible study called Literal or Not, we had the first key. And that is that we take prophetic passages of Scripture literally and apply the same rules that we apply to to any other passage of Scripture. So that's the first key. And the second key is the one that we saw last time, the mystery of the church. The fact that the church was a mystery and not directly referred to or talked about in the Old Testament. And believe it or not, with those two keys, the answer to this question becomes absolutely obvious. All right? What we have to ask ourselves is this. We know that the church isn't mentioned in the Old Testament. What we have to ask is, is the tribulation mentioned in the Old Testament? The answer to that is... Yes, it is. The church isn't, but the tribulation is. Now, actually, that gives you your answer already, but for the moment, let's just put that aside and let's have a look at scriptures that refer to the tribulation in the Old Testament. There are several passages, but I'm going to take just four. Let's begin, first of all, in Deuteronomy and chapter 4 where we see Moses talking to the people of Israel. Deuteronomy 4, and I'm going to begin verse 24. Now remember this. The book of Deuteronomy is the second statement of the law. It was given to the children of Israel by Moses just before they went into the promised land. And here is Moses, he knows them very well, he's had to look after them for 40 years and he starts prophesying about their future. Now they're about to go into the land, he's not going with them and so this is the last chance he has to speak to them. I've often asked myself, what would I say if this was the last Bible study ever that I was going to give? Well, this is the last Bible study that Moses ever gave. He will give some more in the future, but we'll come up to that a little later on, not tonight. And here's what he actually says about the Jews, and it's prophetic. Verse 25. When thou shalt beget children, and children's children, and ye shall have remained long in the land, and shall corrupt yourselves, and make a graven image, or the likeness of anything, and shall do evil in the sight of the Lord thy God, to provoke him to anger. Now, that's mid-sentence. He says, when you do that, knowing full well that they would do it, then, he says, you're not going to get away with it. And this is how he expresses it. In verse 26, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day. Moses does what God often does, He calls not men to be witnesses, but the heavens and the earth. The reason he does this is because no man is going to live long enough to see all these events. And so he calls on the things that will still be around, the very earth and the very heavens, to witness against Israel. He says, I call on heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you shall soon utterly perish from off the land whereunto ye go over Jordan to possess it. Now, as it stands in the King James Version, it makes it sound as if they're all going to be totally destroyed. Now, we know that's not the case, because we've studied the Abrahamic covenant. But, what does it mean? Here you have a, a, a certain device used in Hebrew, where you have the word perish repeated. You shall, to perish, perish, it says. And when you do that in Hebrew, it is an emphasis of what is going to happen. And what he's saying is, you will certainly perish. In other words, you are going to feel my judgment upon you, and some of you are going to die, certainly. It isn't the utterness of the perishing that's emphasized here, it's the certainty of it. So, you will certainly perish from off the land, whereunto you go over Jordan to possess it. Ye shall not prolong your days upon it, but shall be destroyed be to destroy destroyed you see in other words you will certainly be destroyed and here he's saying the land's going to be yours for a time but I'll tell you what's going to happen because of your sinfulness the day is coming when you will be removed from the land all right more details verse 27 and the Lord shall scatter you now that proves to us that they're not all going to be destroyed The Lord shall scatter you among the nations, and ye shall be left few in number among the heathen, whither the Lord shall lead you. And we refer to that as the fifth cycle of discipline, that God would judge the Jews, and his judgment would become so harsh against them that finally he would remove them from the land and would scatter them. Today you will notice that the Jews are scattered. It is true that a certain number are back in the land, But what we have to remember is there are more in New York than there are back in Israel. Now that's important. In other words, the Jews are scattered. Despite the fact there are so many in New York, their overall numbers are a very small percentage of the American population. So today we have a few back in the land, but generally they are still scattered around. Verse 28 and there ye shall serve gods the work of men's hands, wood and stone, which neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. And why? Because they've rejected the Lord their God, who does hear, who does see, who does smell, who does fear. They've rejected him, and he gives them up to their idolatry. But verse 29 is a verse of hope. But if from thence thou shalt seek the Lord thy God, thou shalt Find him. This is marvelous news today, for it means if the Jews as a whole would seek the Lord, God would be their God again, and great blessing and great prosperity would be theirs. So they shall find him, thou, if thou seek him with all thy heart and with all thy soul. Now it's verse 30 that then tells us the details of their restoration. Let me read it through. When thou art in tribulation, And all these things are come upon thee, even in the latter days. If thou shalt turn to the Lord thy God, and shall be obedient to his voice, for the Lord thy God is a merciful God, he will not forsake thee, neither destroy thee, nor forget the covenant of thy fathers, which he swear unto them. Isn't that marvelous? God's tremendous father heart towards the Jews. For 1950 years they've been out of fellowship and he says, if you now turn back I'll still love you and I'll still be your God and you can still be my people. But look what it says, first of all in verse 30, in the latter days. And here we have a prophecy that in the latter days they will be in tribulation. Is the church mentioned here? Oh, clearly not. This is a passage which deals solely with the Jews. Now, today, these days have not yet come upon us. But the day will come when tribulation will affect the Jews. And they will seek the Lord their God, and he will be their God again. All right, now there's Deuteronomy 4, where we have general tribulation talked about. But is it a period of tribulation? (coughs) Well, of course, Jeremiah... The weeping prophet would have something to say about this. So the next scripture I want to turn to is Jeremiah and chapter 30. Jeremiah 30. I've chosen these passages carefully. There are large a large number of passages dealing with the tribulation. But these are to show us that it is a distinct period. And here Jeremiah talks about the regathering of the Jews into the land. I'm beginning verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus speaketh, speaketh the Lord God of Israel. Underlined. Saying, Write thee all the words that I've spoken unto thee in a book. For lo, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will bring again the captivity of my people, Israel and Judah, saith the Lord. Now what's it mean to bring back again their captivity? It makes it sound as if he's going to put them in captivity again. It doesn't mean that. What it really means is he will bring back his people from captivity. The days are going to come, he says, when even though you're scattered, beloved, you're all going to come back. Not just two and a half million of you, all of you. Every single last man of you, no matter where you are on this world, I will whistle for you, and you're going to come back to the land. Praise God. Now that hasn't happened yet. But who's it written to? Specifically the Jews. He's the Lord God of Israel, and he's writing about Judah and about Israel. This is not the church. Right? Just taking it, literally, you can see that. Then what does he say? And I will cause them to return to the land that I gave their fathers, and they shall possess it. Verse 4. And these are the words that the Lord spake concerning Israel and Judah. Here it is, verse verse 5. For thus saith the Lord, we have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Ask ye now, and see whether a man doth travail with child. Wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in travail and all faces are turned into paleness? Now the Jews were expecting a glorious day of return. They were expecting joy and tambourines. Oh wonderful when God brings them back into the land. God says it has been like that every time so far and it has. But this time when I bring you all back, it is going to be a day of disaster and calamity. He says it is going to be a time of tremendous trouble. All right? Here it is, trembling fear and peace. And these pictures are just lovely. Ask ye now and see whether a man doth travail with child. Right? Does a man give birth to a child? And what is it? It's talking about the way that the Jews and many men, when they're in utter disaster and utter despair, they walk around with their hands on their stomach. You know? or perhaps on their heads, in a way that a woman who is pregnant seems to be so heavily laden, you know, hardly move along, having to support herself. That's the picture that's given here. And he says, every man in these days is going to look just like that. And then all faces will be ashen and white because of terror. It's a period of tremendous tribulation. Verse 7, alas. For the day is great, so that there is none like it. We have a reference here to, to the word day. Now sometimes the word day in Scripture means a literal 24 hours. But other times it means a period of time. For example, it says now is the day of salvation. And we've been living in the day of salvation for at least the last 2,000 years. Right? In other words, it's the period of time where salvation is freely available. And it's a warning, the time will come when it's not freely available. And here, the reference to the day is the phrase, the day of the Lord. The day when God himself will intervene in the earth's history, first of all to judge a God-forsaken, sorry, a God-forsaking, and a Christ-forsaking world. God has not forsaken them, they have forsaken him. And he will come down and he will judge the earth. Right? Now that's the first thing. The next thing is, it is the time when he will deal with his people Israel. But we'll see that in a moment. There is none like it. In other words, there is no time of trouble that has been in history that can be compared to this time that is coming upon the world. You think of the worst period of history. And it doesn't even compare to the time that is coming upon the world. And then it goes on. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble. And notice what it says, but he shall be saved out of it. Hallelujah. Now who was this man, Jacob? Jacob's other name was Israel. And he was the father of 12 sons, who themselves were the fathers of the tribes of Israel. And here, therefore, he is talking about a time which is a time of trouble specifically for the Jewish nation. So awful, they won't have been through anything like it ever before. But the glorious thing is, they shall be saved out from it. And when they are going through this terror, all of a sudden they realize they have lost the blessing of the Lord their God. And they turn round to him, and many of them turn to their Messiah again. He whom they have pierced, they look upon him, and suddenly they find that Messiah has come back to them. And God uses this period of the tribulation to bring the Jews as a nation back to himself. They won't all be saved, but a lot of them are going to be saved from this. All right, there it is. For it shall come to pass, verse 8, in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off thy neck and will burst thy bonds, and strangers shall no more serve themselves of him. A time of freedom, a time of blessing at last, for the first time since the Babylonian captivity. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up unto them. And we see here, at the end of this period of trouble, the Jews prepared and sanctified, given over to the Lord, their God, so that they can come into all the blessings of the promises and all the blessings of the covenants which we have studied in the last few few Bible studies. And God prepares them through this time. What is this period of tribulation? Is the church mentioned? Absolutely not. This is a period which is related to the Jewish nation and to the world in those days. All right, let's have a look at another scripture where we see a time of trouble mentioned again. And we'll be coming back to this scripture a little later on. Daniel and chapter 12, Daniel and chapter 12 and beginning verse 1. Actually, it is just verse 1. Verse 1. Daniel 12 verse 1 and at that time and at that time this is a reference to the last days again which I will show you later on in this Bible study and at that time shall Michael stand up here's the Archangel Michael and you know he's the angel who looks after Israel he's a very 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 busy angel and he fights for Israel. He's called Israel's angel um, in Daniel 10, verse 21. But here he's also called Israel's angel. Here it is. At that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy nation, thy people. Right? He's still around today and he's still possession, positioned right over Jerusalem. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time, and at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. Okay? What's it talking about? Israel again. It's Israel's angel. It's talking about the last days, and it's talking about a time of trouble which cannot be compared to any other time of trouble. And what happens again? Israel shall be saved. Israel shall be delivered those whose names are written in the book in other words those who have believed now there it is Do you see every time we see the tribulation it's related to the Jewish nation On to our last passage in the Old Testament dealing with this on to Malachi 3 Malachi 3 beginning verse 2 The words that handle set to music of course and here it's talking specifically about the second advent of Jesus Christ, and who may abide the day of his coming? Who shall stand when he appeareth? He's like a refiner's fire. In other words, he purifies, like full of soap, which is the type of soap used in the laundry, He cleans. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi. Who are they? The church? Oh no, it's the sons of Levi, believe it or not. And who are the sons of Levi? They are the priests for the nation. Here are some children who are descendants of Levi and God purifies the priesthood because he's going to get them into action again for what lies ahead. He will purify them and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord. And so it goes on. Now, can you see definite reference to Israel? The church nowhere mentioned, the Jews mentioned everywhere. Now, of course, some people spiritualize these passages. And they say, ah, well, you see, Jacob is just a name for the church. The sons of Levi are the priesthood of believers doesn't say, of course, uh, how they get over the fact that Jesus Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, but never mind. Oh, no, and it's a spiritual picture. So this, therefore, deals with the tribulation, they say, and the church is going through it. That's not the reading, actually, that you get, and by now you will have guessed the answer to the question, will the church go through the tribulation, is no, it definitely will not. It cannot, possibly. But let's just continue for a moment. Let's assume that they are correct that actually Jacob does mean the church, and it doesn't. But let's assume they're right, and that the sons of Levi also mean the church. Do you know what you get? You get something that approaches heresy. You get what I would call the Protestant form of purgatory, right? (laughs) Purgatory is when, of course, you have to suffer for your sins. Christ's death is not enough. You have to suffer a little bit. And so here are believers at the end of the age... They're supposed to have the righteousness of Christ. He has become a curse for them that they should not be cursed. They're supposed to have been sanctified in Christ, but all of a sudden it's not enough. And now the last generation of the church has to be purified even through the tribulation. And so through we go, hammered into the ground, right? God's going to get us pure whether it kills him or not. Of course, it's absolute heresy. For to make us pure, Jesus Christ did die. He was put to death, and we are sanctified and cleansed in him. Suffering, beloved, will not cleanse you. This is a heresy from many parts of the world where they flagellate themselves. They whip themselves to try and purify themselves. Man's work cannot purify from sin, only the work of Jesus Christ. And the church is purified in Christ because it is the body of Jesus Christ. All right, let's go to the New Testament and just have a look at that. Romans 5, Romans 5, there are so many, of course, on this. Romans 5, verse 8 and 9, or oh, verse 8, yes, nine that's right yep but God commendeth his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us he didn't die for us and give us salvation when we were all pure and when we finally won our own salvation he did it when we were riches hallelujah much more then he says being now justified by his blood look we shall be saved from wrath through him all wrath There is now no judgment for those in Christ Jesus, and this wrath also includes the wrath of the tribulation. Why? Because we are already sanctified. He has become our righteousness and our sanctification, and we are complete in him. Oh, the heresy gets even worse, actually, because do you know that the church doesn't consist of people who are alive today? It consists of all those Christians who've been alive since the day of Pentecost. And so, 99% of the church, those that are dead, are already with Christ in heaven. They are glorious and wonderful, but apparently the last 1% has really got to go through it. The rest have been purified just on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ, but it's not good enough for you. That's it. It's odd, isn't it? I mean, are those who are supposed to go through the tribulation, are they given a special salvation, better than the other 99%? You don't read of that in Scripture. We're all one body. You see? It's a total heresy. Why should the last percent be treated differently? Oh, some people say, ah, well, the tribulation's here to prepare the bride. That's what it's all about. It's rather like falling in love with a woman and then saying, before I marry you, darling, you've got to serve seven years in in Vietnam. (laughs) Right? You will go through the swamps, you will be massacred, you will be scarred, you will be maimed, and you will be bleeding, and then you can come down the aisle with me. (laughs) Absolutely staggering. It's absolute nonsense. We have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's called imputed righteousness. You do not earn it. You cannot. You certainly do not deserve it. It is not given to you by the devil or by the world or by suffering. It is given to you according to your faith in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. No, 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 no. There's a lovely scripture actually which does come to my mind. I must just turn to this. Hebrews 10, verse 14, verse 12, and then verse 14. But this man, Jesus Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Verse 14 then, for by one offering he has perfected forever. Hallelujah. He has perfected forever them that are sanctified. Praise the name of Jesus. Beloved, you will not go through the wrath of the tribulation. It will not serve to cleanse you or anything like it. Why, therefore, do we read in Malachi that there is cleansing? Beloved, this cleansing is for the Jews who survived the tribulation there will be a group of Jews, Jewish believers, who will end up at the second advent alive. Those who endure to the end, they will be delivered. Don't you worry. That's what Matthew 24 says. And they will see Jesus Christ coming. Now, the Lord is going to use them to people the earth in the kingdom. And so they have to be purified here on earth. The purification consists, first of all, of removing... The unbelievers from among them. And there are other things that need to be done. It has no reference to the church whatsoever. All right. When we first studied this in the very first Bible study, we found out about the tribulation from a passage in the Gospels. So may we just turn to the Gospel passage and let's see if that confirms what we found out. Matthew 24 and beginning. Verse 29. Matthew 24, beginning verse 29, and we don't have to go into this deeply, particularly, for it's self evident. Beginning verse 29 immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, the moon shall not give her light, the stars shall fall from heaven, the powers of the heaven shall be shaken, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in the heaven. In other words, the second advent. What does that tell us? That this period of tribulation is in the last days, just before the second advent. Well, we've seen that in the Old Testament. That agrees. Then go to verse 21 of Matthew 24. Here's a description. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no nor ever shall be. What does that mean? It's, there is nothing to compare with it. Well, we found that out too from the Old Testament. Well, it's absolutely dead on schedule. Verse 3, sorry, verse 5. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, it's the word Messiah. I am the Messiah. That's it. In verse 24, you've got the same. For there shall arise false messiahs and false prophets. Now, it was the Jews who were looking for the Messiah. The Gentiles knew nothing about a Messiah. It was the Jews that did. This, therefore, is talking about Jews who'd be looking. And they will be misguided if they're not very careful. All right? And people will come, Oh, the Messiah's arrived, by the way. He says, don't listen to them and don't go out to them. There we are. Verse 20, you have a prayer that we in the church can never pray. But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on a Sabbath day. Now, the church doesn't keep the Sabbath, right? We live in the God's constant Sabbath now. Praise God. There is a rest for the children of God. But according to the Old Testament law, you weren't Supposed to move more than a short distance on the sabbath day now what happens if they have to flee from the land in On a sabbath day they can't go very far You'll notice by the way that law never changes For many Christians today the law is to be obeyed when it suits them But of course in a dire emergency they will forget all about the law here Jesus Christ says you better pray that your flight isn't on a sabbath day or else you're not going to be able to escape In other words the law will be upheld even though it means your death for the law is more important than life in this particular context verse 16 then let them which be in Judea flee to the mountains now what's that mean that the church in Jerusalem is going to suffer worse persecution than anywhere else no definitely not this is a persecution against the Jews and obviously it is the nation of Israel which is going to be persecuted more than any other So, he singles it out. I'm just pointing out these odd verses to show it confirms exactly what we've seen in the Old Testament. And the last one I want to point out is verse 15. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolations, which I will describe in some detail in a few Bible studies time, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. The holy place is part of the temple. Beloved, in the church, my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The abomination of desolations will never stand in this particular temple. Praise God. This shows us there will be a time when the temple will be rebuilt and the abomination of desolations will be set up in it. Now can you see, all these are just little pointers to the fact that tribulation is a time of Jewish persecution as well as a time of God's judgment on the earth The church has already gone from this period. Next time we're going to see New Testament scriptures that support that particular claim and we're going to look at Daniel's 70th week. But what I want to do for the remaining time now is go back to Daniel 12 verse 1 and let's see something very interesting. Daniel 12 and verse 1. And can you see here in verse 1 that it says, at that time? And so we've got to ask ourselves, it says at that time, but what is that time? Remember, of course, that the Bible as it was originally written had no chapter divides. At that time, therefore, refers to the period of time at the end of Daniel chapter 11. All right? It describes Daniel chapter eleven comes down, and then he says, "At that time the end comes." That's what he says, and so we have to turn our attention to Daniel eleven. Daniel eleven is a most remarkable book uh, chapter, probably one of the most remarkable chapters of the Old Testament. Do you know? From it was written in five three four B.C. I've justified that date on another tape, I think the dating of Daniel or something, 534 BC. But do you know, it gives in detail, not in just a little detail, in fantastic detail, the history between the year 323 BC and 193 BC. In other words, history that came 200 years after it was written in immense and staggering detail from verse 1 to verse 35. The detail is so fantastic that one Bible critics will never accept that it was written before the events occurred. They read it through and they say, this is so accurate, it must have been written by someone who knew what had happened. Right? They're wrong because God knew what had happened, and he knew before the things happened, you see. But the second consequence is, it's so complicated that the vast majority of Bible-believing Christians, who in our day are particularly lazy, cannot be bothered to either do the research to understand it, even though it's obvious research, and what is more, most of them could not possibly sit through the hours of historical background that are needed to teach this particular chapter. One day I'm going to go right through verse 1 to 35 in detail and let's see how many people we end up with at the end. (laughs) All right, now that's up to verse 35. But there's something very interesting and remarkable. For if we check through the history of Palestine and the history of the Jews, there is nothing at all that approximates to verse 36 to 45. Absolutely nothing no matter how much you try and push it, you can't find a fulfillment from verse 36 to verse 45. And what does it mean? Does it mean Daniel's made a mistake? Oh, definitely no. What does it mean? Beloved, it means one thing. It means that verse 36 and ver- to verse 45 has yet to occur. It is future history. And it deals with the land of Palestine. Now we get back to what we studied last time, the mystery of the church. Where does the church come in? Why beloved, it's between Daniel 11 verse 35 and Daniel 11 verse 36. That's where we see, or rather where we don't see, the church. It was God's little secret. And what happened? The history of the Jews went up to verse 35. Then the church interrupted And once the church is gone, the history will resume exactly as God has said. Praise God. Marvellous stuff, that. So, there it is. We will be actually dealing with the battle campaign of the tribulation, and later on in this course, we'll be going through every verse, from verse 36 to verse 45. Now, that's the first thing. Then let's go to the passage we saw last time in Daniel, again, Daniel chapter 2. You may not have noticed it, but while I was dealing with the dream, do you remember the nightmare of Nebuchadnezzar that we saw last time? Did you notice that I sort of went rapidly through the legs and through the feet and the toes? I brushed it aside a bit. Well, why? Because we needed a bit more information. And I can fill in that information today. Do you remember he saw a vision which showed him four world empires? Babylon? Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Okay, let's take Rome. Verse 40. The fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron. Daniel 2, verse 40. Forasmuch as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things, and as iron that breaketh all these things, shall it break in pieces and bruise. Now there are the, the legs. Iron. Rome. Strong. But then it starts talking about the feet and the toes and it says there's a weakness. Now on the feet are ten toes, all right, ten toes, and he concentrates on them and he says that it's that part of the image that is destroyed. Hmm, now what we have to ask ourselves is this, the ten toes, does that mean to say that Rome actually becomes ten kingdoms? Does it or does it not? Well we can answer that for sure, by turning to yet another passage in Daniel 7, and then we'll come back to Daniel 2. In Daniel 7, which I've also dealt with before in the four monsters of Daniel, we again see Rome. Right? Daniel 7, verse 7. Here's Rome. After this, I saw in the night visions. He'd seen certain creatures, he'd seen the lion, he'd seen the bear, he'd seen the leopard, now he sees a fourth monster coming up. And behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth, it devoured and brake in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it, and it was diverse from all beasts that were before it. Look at this. And it had ten horns. Ten horns. And then he says, and a little one came up, an eleventh horn, and it knocked down three of the horns that were there before. And do you remember I said, we're not going to deal with this in the four monsters of Daniel. What does this mean? Well, fortunately, there's a good, kind angel he's going to interpret for us. And if you go to verse 23, we see it. Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth. That's Rome. "...which shall be diverse from all kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, and shall tread it down, and break it in pieces." And then verse 24, "...and the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings." Ten separate kingdoms. "...that shall arise, and then another king shall arise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three of the kings." Now, we've got the same problem. We know the history of Rome. Rome lasted until 476 AD, when the very, very last king, who was only a boy, was finally kicked out of office, or emperor, was kicked out. And Odoacer, right, and the Vandals and the Goths and the Visigoths and all the others came in and they dis- they destroyed the Roman Empire. Now, we know that. Up to this time, the Roman Empire was strong and was, as we see it described, both in verse 7 and in verse 23. But when you look at Roman history, you never see a period where there are there is an alliance or confederation of ten nations nor do you see a time when another king comes up and destroys three of the nations. It's nowhere found in Roman history. Oh, so what's this then? The answer is that this is yet future. Now this is quite staggering, because it means that even though the world thinks the Roman Empire has gone, it has not. There is an underground stream which is called the Roman Empire, which at times has reappeared and then quickly ducked under again, but which in a future period is going to come out with all the fullness that it had before. The Roman Empire is coming back. That's the message. It's quite staggering. The common market is not it. It's a forerunner of it. Interesting, isn't it, that you've got the Treaty of Rome. It's been established with. But nevertheless, we are not there yet. It is coming back in full glory, and do you know that it will be a confederation of ten nations? If I get time, again, further on in the course, I will name the nations for you, right? But uh, it's coming out again, and it's going to be magnificent. The world is going to be absolutely astonished when it sees it rising. It's coming back. There is this evil underneath our society which is just waiting to burst through. Now what's happened? The church has come in and it has caused a divide in the Roman Empire. You see, where do we find the church? Well, here's where we find the church. Um, First of all, well, I'll take it just in the later passage, in Daniel 7 and between verse 23 and verse 24. The church is in there. In other words, Roman history went up to the church and stopped. Then the church comes in, then the church goes, and guess what? History carries on as it did before. Amazing. And we are living in that little gap at the end of verse 23. Praise God. Isn't this a staggering revelation? The tribulation then will be a time of great judgment. It will be a time of terror. It will be a time when the, revi- the Roman Empire will revive and come out again in the form of ten kingdoms. And it will be a time at the end of which the Jews will be restored to their Savior Messiah, Jesus Christ. Praise his wonderful name. That is what lies ahead. As for us, well, where do we stand? Next time or the time after, I'll be going through scriptures in the New Testament to show us Where we do stand let me just end for tonight with two scriptures from the New Testament which are wonderful first of all 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 10 don't bother to find this I'll just read it to us 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10 we are told here to wait for his son from heaven Jesus Christ whom he raised from the dead which Literally, delivers us from the wrath to come. Hallelujah. What's that mean? You won't be judged and you're not going through the tribulation. That's what it means. Hallelujah. And the very final scripture for tonight in Titus 2, verse 11, 12, 13, 14. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works, Beloved, the church is not to look for the tribulation. The church is to look for the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. Wherefore, my beloved, comfort yourselves with these words. Amen. Praise God.